You're listening to Smart Businesses Do This. And in this episode, I talk to Jim Miller, a sales genius. Keep listening to this episode if you want to learn how to build a sales team, build a sales system, and hit every single sales target your heart desires. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. You are listening to Smart Businesses Do This, the podcast show for freelancers, side hustlers, and upcoming small business owners who want to transform their current business or business idea into a company that is built to succeed, simple to run, and gives you the freedom to live your life on your own terms. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. Today, I have the one and only Jim Miller. Hey, Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing real well, Adam. Thanks for the introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Now, what I love about this is I know there are going to be people listening to this being like, uh, who's Jim Miller? Like, what has he done? Jim, I could speak for your accolades for you because I know how great you are. But, you know, take this moment, just brag just for a little bit. Just share with people some of the incredible things you've done over the last few decades. Well, my background relevant to this conversation uh, starts in 2001, where I was uh, hired to be the, the vice president of sales for Tony Robbins. And at that time, his organization was in quite a situation. Um, he was going through a divorce. The company was, for the most part, uh, going out of business. And so I remember my first day of work, I'd arrived from the airport. I hadn't even put my suitcase down. And I had the vice president of the company, as well as the CEO, telling me, Jim, for for purposes of transparency, we have to let you know that the company's going bankrupt. And uh, so this was quite a shock to me. First of all, Tony Robbins going bankrupt. And secondly, I had just got married on Friday, hadn't even taken my wife on a honeymoon and left the altar to fly to San Diego from New Orleans to take this position. So I told them, listen, let's not do anything rash. Give me a little bit of time and let's see what we can do. And so in the end, by the 24th month, we had generated more revenue in the company than the history of the company combined with the uh, sales strategies, the programs that are many of which are still in place right now, including a $20 million coaching program. And I worked with Tony uh, and uh, traveled around the world with him for a few years, met many of the world's uh, biggest uh, thought leaders and worked with guys, um, Jay Abraham, Keith Cunningham you know, on and on and on with uh, Harvard professors, Nobel Prize winners, you name it. So it's quite an experience. I love that, Jim. It's so incredible because what I love most about you is you've got this pedigree. You know, you've worked for this household company. Everyone knows Tony Robbins coaching and you're the one that brought them back from the brink of bankruptcy with your sales methods. Yes, right. We built up a pretty extraordinary sales team. And then we used, uh, you know, it was really interesting because, uh, when I first got there, Adam, after my first day and that initial shock in the second day, they had flown me out to Hawaii to be with Tony because Tony wanted to meet me for, again after having hired me. And while we, in, we were in Hawaii, 9-11 hit. We were stuck in Hawaii. I had to get back because the very first event we were doing was a UPW in Orlando, Florida. And so I had to get my sales team going. We had to get sales going. Otherwise, if we didn't have a big hit in Florida, we were shut down. So ultimately, when I was able to get back, still no one was willing to fly. And all of the attendees in that Orlando show, most of them were all East Coast fly-ins from the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And so we had a big problem on our hand. And then we had the anthrax 
issue that hit in Florida. So there was a big reluctance to go to Florida. So we were able to put together a sales strategy and all of my sales team, none of my sales team wanted to sell because they were all bought into the fact that, hey, we can't ask people to fly because there may be another terrorist attack because we were, oh, there yeah. were still a number of terrorist attacks that were still happening. And so my first biggest challenge as vice president there was to change the psychology of my sales team because my entire sales team was bought into the fact that there's no way we can get people to even take this event serious right now after having faced what it is that the nation was facing, even irrespective of the inability to fly, they thought that it was something that people would rather not even talk about going to a Tony Robbins event while the nation was mourning and under the scare. And so the big psychology conversation that I had to have was if there was anybody in the universe that stood for changing the psychology of this country from one of fear to one of courage to take action, to not allow every single day, every single moment that we were under the threat of terrorism, it was Tony Robbins. That people came to Tony Robbins for a psychology of courage, for a psychology of taking action. And so I got the team totally motivated and gave them specific strategies and sales conversations to have with the general public. We ended up filling up Orlando and I believe we set several sales records for the company at that event. So it was quite a success. I love this. I love that turnaround because there are so many companies that during that time would have felt the opposite and would have actually failed, like you said, because they bought into that climate of fear. And I love how you turned it around into a selling proposition to actually sell out an event at a time when the company was on the brink of bankruptcy. Absolutely. Because the fear that we faced from the general public and the fear that we faced even internally you know, my, I used an analogy and a very visual analogy. I said, as long as you allow fear to embrace you, then you are allowing those planes to strike those buildings every single day. I said, it's just simply another replay, a replay every single day. Those two planes are striking those two buildings. As long as you're living in fear, it's not where we operate from. Yeah. I have a, one of my clients actually uh, specializes in teaching Zen and stoicism. And there's this great story about these two monks that have vowed to never touch a woman. And uh, there's a woman trying to cross a river and the older monk picks up the woman and carries her across the river. And then once they get the other side, they keep walking and the younger monk keeps looking at his, you know, tutor and he's like all awkward. And he's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then like about two hours later, he says, master, why are we not going to talk about the fact that you touched a woman after taking a vow of not touching a woman? And he said, I left that woman back by the river hours ago. Why haven't you? Ah, very good. Exactly. I love that people do. They hold on to problems for such a long time. Whereas sometimes, you know, the bigger picture is so much more. So Jim, I want to talk some more about, about the psychology of sales and specifically for business owners, because I always tell people that when you start your business, it's actually better rather than starting with a product that is refined and perfect, start with a sale. I believe that the sales department is the most important department of any company. And yet, for some reason, entrepreneurs build the sales department last. They'll like do everything except the sales department and then be struggling for cash. Where I see the most successful businesses start with sales first. What, you know, as obviously a sales professional, what do you think about that? Well, um, I mean, the evidence is, 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 is very blatant. I can't tell you how many times, dozens of times where 
I was engaged in a sales effort or my team was engaged in a sales effort or of a product or a program that had not even yet been developed where we were pre-selling yep. to the point where we generated so much capital. It was a very easy play then to manufacture the product that we were selling or to develop the program that we were selling. Right. And yep. then we I, I- ultimately, we ultimately delivered. And I love that you say that because that's actually the biggest strategy in our company. We always pre-sell a product. And if the product doesn't sell, then we would rather go to the two or three people that have already bought and say to them, hey, listen, um, we love that you like this. However, we couldn't get enough buy-in. So we have either an alternate product or we'll turn it into a, a one-day live training or we'll switch it on them and offer them a full refund instead, you know, if, if that's what they prefer. Absolutely. And the truth is, is that there really should be no reason for having to do that because the focus is on developing a sales, number one, sales personnel, right? And then number two, what's most important is developing a sales methodology because what sales personnel end up becoming under any sales force that I build, simply they are executioners of the sales system that they are provided by me. So I don't ask people to sell. I don't ask people to close. All I ask is a faithful and energetic and professional execution of a system that I know already works. <laughs> I love that. So I, I love that you're talking about sales systems. Let me just jump in just for a second on this. I think one of the most prolific salespeople on the planet that everyone knows will be Jordan Belfort, of course, because Wolf of Wall Street, Straight Line Persuasion. What do you think about his sales system? How does it either compare to yours or, or are there differences? Well, I can tell you this. My methodology of selling is not so much the rah-rah type of selling or the, you know, motivate, you know, whip up into a frenzy, a sales team. My methodology is very professional. It can be delivered by any intelligent person. And then the subsequent training that I do, because that's what's important, is not only to provide an individual with a system that you know already works, but then secondarily to continue to train. Like I train sales forces at least three times a week. And irrespective of how long they've been with me, how long they've been in sales, I continue the sales training because we're always talking about human psychiatry, negotiation, influence, and at a very deep level, right? At a level that that college students study it so that we can very quickly become extraordinarily advanced at what we do, right? This is what the sales manager, the vice president of sales, or even the CEO, your responsibility is to develop these masters of influence so that the money you're spending on your marketing, the money you're spending on the development of your product or market share, whatever it is, you know, the investment that you're making will in fact be covered by the revenue generated in sales. So it is, it's absolutely the most important. uh, I mean, along with marketing, because you've got to have leads, you've got to have lead people, you've got to have sales opportunities And when I say sales opportunities, what I do is I break down the lead into two categories. You're either going to, in sale, marketing is either going to give the sales team either a suspect or a prospect. Mm -hmm. And a suspect is someone who has no money and has no availability to money. That's the only issue that, because I'll talk later about the fact that there are no objection, right? There's no such thing as an objection in sale. But the only condition that I cannot sell into is someone who who has the inability to buy. They either have no money or they have no access to money. That is a suspect. And suspects can be filtered out, right? Through application forms, for example, 
or from the, the very, the initial marketing itself. But generally I will use application forms and questions in there that filter and reveal the financial status of the individual. And then even subsequent to, to that, very early in the conversations, you know, I'll determine whether or not I'm working with a suspect or a prospect. Now, a prospect is somebody who has money or has the availability to get money. And that person is fair play, irrespective of whether they want to do it now, they want to do it later, they need to talk to this, this person, that person, all of that. None of that matters to me. They are a prospect that is now my responsibility on the call. And here's where sales professionals miss the mark. Where they miss the mark is in their belief, in their mind, that person becomes a client once they buy. And that's a fallacy. Your job and why we, are, why we have the degree of success that we have is because we turn them into a client on the call and then ask them to buy once they are a client. But the sales methodology is designed to transform a prospect into a client and then get them to pay. I love that. I had a great interview with a guy by the name of Tom Breeze a little while ago. Do you know Tom? Have you met him before? He's a, a YouTube ad specialist, but he talks about in his methodology, he gets people to identify with the person they want to be in the future. And then once they're sold on imagining themselves as this future person, he'll get them to state what kind of decisions that future person would make or has made. And then he'll say to them, that future version of you did they make the decision to take this training? Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, future it's person. yeah it's, I love that. And then they're like, yeah, that person would have. And he says, okay, well, it sounds like you've already made that decision. This is like a big part of his methodology. So, and I love what you're saying as well. The focus is on making them be the client in their mind before they even purchase the product. Yeah. Now there's a methodology. Now that, that in proper, and really when we're talking about advanced sales, you know, we're talking about selling programs that are 5,000, 10,000, dollars $50,000 programs, right? What we use, that's half of the formula. That what it is that you just mentioned that, that this gentleman uses. We use a process called cognitive dissonance where we're creating within the individual through the use of the question, right? The question is the tool. That's the tool. That's the lever. And so what we do is we identify, first of all, from that individual, the actual pain and price that they're experiencing in life by not being who it is they want to be, right? What is it costing you to not be an entrepreneur? What is it costing you to not have the financial freedom, to not have the ability to take off whenever you want, to not have the ability to control your time so that you're there for your family, et cetera, et cetera. What are these costs? What is the emotional cost? What's the intellectual cost? What's the opportunity cost? And so we go into this deep conversation about cost. So that we can get to what the individual has sublimated in themselves, and that's the pain, right? We all walk around with this sublimation of anxiety and pain that we've got shoved down and we cope with it. We're all walking coping mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not how to truly live life. It's not an authentic life. It's a simple way of being able to function in life while the pain is still there. We shove it down, we sublimate it, and then we develop coping mechanisms. There's a great book, by the way, that's called Resistance to Change, Immunity to Change, excuse me. Uh It's one of the best books I've ever read, Immunity to Change by um, Robert Keegan out of Harvard University. And it talks about this, the way that we create these mechanisms within ourselves that allow us to operate in life, even though we have the pains 
of not being who we authentically desire to be. And so what I do in my methodology is I access that pain. Let's uncover that pain. Let's talk about it because it's real and it's relevant. And that pain, by the way, is defining the trajectory of your life. You're making all of your decisions. You're taking all the actions, especially in moments of stress, as a result of all the sublimated pain that you have inside you. It's actually determining. It's like an invisible rudder in the water that's determining the direction and even the trajectory of your life. And so pain uninvestigated is very dangerous. Yeah. So we investigate it through the question, through query. We investigate it. And then after we have access to all of this and we've got it laid out on the table, then we shift, we pivot, and we talk about the fantasy. We go from the fatal into the fantasy. So if you were to live the life that you truly desire to live outside of that pain. And then we do the mental construct. What would that look like? Just like the gentleman does. What would it look like to be the CEO? What type of decisions would you be making? Where would you be traveling? What type of individuals would you be hanging around? What type of internal conversation would you have about yourself? How would others see you, et cetera, et cetera. Now we have this cognitive dissonance. We have the pain and we have the pleasure. And the truth is, is that human beings cannot coexist in both at the same time. It's, it creates what's called a, a condition of cognitive dissonance. And the only way out of cognitive dissonance is to take action, to seek solution. And of course, the solution is our program or is our product. Yep. And so the person now is more predisposed. They are now a client, somebody that's very clear about their needs, their wants, their desires, why it is that they want to, uh, join into our program. They see the benefits. And of course, then we describe all the benefits and all the features of the program and attach them to, this is important. We don't just describe it in isolation of the individual. We then attach the features and the benefits to the desires of the individual, to the fulfillment of the desires of, to the individual. And then we call them to action. We reveal price and then we call them to action. I love this. Now, you did mention earlier that there's no such thing as an objection. And I know there's, you know, business owners listening to this being like, ah, that's not true. I get objections all the time. What, what did you mean by that? And what's the solution there? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at it. And, and you know, I use etymology as my first witness. And when you take the word objection, the first, you know, the root word in there is object, right? Right. To object an object. There is no object. And I want to think about it. I want to talk it over with my wife. I'm going to pray. These are all subjections is what I call them. They're subjective feelings. They're subjective thoughts. And what they really are is resistance. They're resistance. The inability to move, to take action, the inability to move out of the status quo that the individual operates in, that they've created for themselves, where it's predictable, where it's comfortable, where it's safe, right? Because this is how we want to operate as human beings. Our human nature loathes unpredictability. Our human nature loads risk, right? And yeah. so what we do is we construct a life of safety where we're safe, right? Where we create this womb, we go back into the womb. You know, the greatest, the greatest anxiety, the first experience that we have of anxiety is when we're born, right? When we come out of this womb into the big bad world. And what we want to do is create, we all have this infantile desire to create this world around us where everything is safe and every, you know, everything is peaceful and everything is predictable. And so the truth is, is that when we call an individual to action, what are we calling them to do? We're calling them to change. We're calling them to risk. We're calling them into uncertainty, right? Yep. So the word decision, 
If you look at the etymology of the word decision, it comes from the Greek decisare. And the word cesare is the root word of scissors, right? Of incision, of incisors, your teeth is to cut. And the prefix D means away from. So a decision, the first impulse of a decision is to cut away from, right? Yeah. To not move forward. So the first impulse of a decision is for us to take whatever is holding us from moving forward and deal with that first. And we're reluctant where salesmen fail is they don't deal with that first. That's why we get into that pain. We get into the pain first so that the individual can cut away to see that the life that they're living is failing, to see that the strategies that they are living are no longer producing for them what they desire, that these strategies are in fact working against them. I love it. So it's like the safety in the womb of the life that they've created now that is, you know, predictable and boring is also the binds and the chains that hold them back from the life they actually seek and want. Absolutely. And so that's why we create the fantasy phase of it to create motivation, to create desire, to move into something new, right? To move into, we help them paint that picture. It's really interesting when we enunciate something, when we speak into the reality of what could be, then the possibility of it actually taking place becomes very strong and becomes more importantly, becomes very desirable. I, yeah, I love that channel. I think this is so powerful. So, you know, I, I'm obviously there's gonna be some business owners here and one of the, uh, you know, one of actually another, one of my very good clients does all their own sales themselves and they do great. They make like, I don't know, say 27 grand on average a week, which is pretty good money. Right. But they do all the sales themselves. And I've been trying to convince this person to start a sales team for so long, but they have a fear that they're going to grab a salesperson. The salesperson's going to suck. They won't make any money and they won't be able to. Objection. They have a subjection, right? They have resistance. Right. Exactly. And in getting them past this, the one question they always have is how do I hire somebody? How do I find salespeople to come on board? So, you know, somebody listening to this, obviously you're incredible at building sales teams. How does somebody go about starting a sales team? Well, the first thing to start a sales team is to make sure that you have already codified and you are very adroit at being able to teach a sales system. So the first thing that I would say before anyone hires a salesperson, make sure you have a sales system. Mm -hmm. Because if you rely on the innate skills of an individual to come in and just start selling, they're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. There must be a formal scripted system that you are able to very effectively teach. Because remember what a sales personnel is, I don't ask them to be salesmen. I don't ask them to be closers. What I ask them to do is to execute, yeah. to execute into this system. And then I will train you on the system. And then I will continuously coach you because that's what you end up becoming. You see, the salesperson is my internal client that I'm continuously coaching right? So and coaching them into effectiveness, into proficiency, into efficiency, and into purpose. You know, why is it that you, because we can very easily lose our purpose, you know, and if you lose your purpose, you lose your effect. Why is it that you're doing what you're doing, right? Purpose is a strong motivator. You know, it's not a rah-rah, but it's, it's actually, you know, it's, it's a scaffolding strategy, right? So I would look for, first of all, someone who's very intelligent, someone who's very persuasive in conversation, so I, you know, being a conversationalist, you know, when I look to recruit, what I will do is I will engage in conversation with that purpose. And I'll ask them a very, very challenging question, first of all. And it's something that we did just recently in this event in Las Vegas. 
in order to initiate deep conversation with an individual and get them to access what it is inside of their being as opposed to what's inside of their mouth, right? Because a lot of times we just give the first answer. It's inside of our mouth. It's real quick. It's real easy. It's our three second elevator talk and we're able to say it. And what I want you to do is I want you to spit out what's in your mouth because what I'm interested in is what's inside your gut, what's inside your heart, what's inside your loins, what's inside your being, right? I want to find out who you are and if you're able to enunciate that. So the first question I ask is, you know, after uh, connecting with the person and doing the, you know, the adieus, et cetera, mm-hmm. is, okay, so I might say, okay, so Adam, if you would, please tell me, what is your purpose in life? Cool. Uh, you want me... Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's the kind of thing that's really going to get somebody to start, you know, analyzing themselves and start bringing it up to you. And I can see that some people might like freeze up on that, right? And they'll be like, I don't know what my purpose is. Right. And what I'm looking for in the individual is I'm not looking for the right or the wrong answer. What I'm looking for is your ability to speak into your purpose, your conversation, your ability to influence me. Because when I ask somebody, what is your purpose? subconsciously I'm challenging them to influence me. Mm-hmm. In other words, what they hear is I need to give him the right answer, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is a very significant, I've got to nail this. This is a question. When somebody asks you, what is your purpose? This is a question you've got to nail. There is no willy nilly answer to this because then you would seem to be someone of insignificance. If they can convince you of their purpose, then you know, they're a good salesperson. Absolutely. And I want to hear how they converse, Right. I want to watch them go down deep into the kitchen, as Robert Bly says in his book, Iron John, right? We go down deep into the kitchen to really get the answers of of substance, right? What it is that substantiates us as a human being is down deep, right? So I want to watch that process. And then I want to hear them. And And if they're convincing and if they're able to enunciate and you know, they speak well. And, and it sounds to me as if I'm speaking to a professional. Well, then that person has the ability to be convincing to others if given the proper framework, right? Which is the presentation that I provide. Well, it's the entire thing that I provide. I absolutely love this. Jim, this has been absolutely invaluable. I can tell that like many people coming into this, you know, are going to get a lot out of it. So in a moment, I want to talk about something about where people can learn more about what you do and where they can get it from. But before that, if you could leave people with one thing that they could do to maybe either make themselves better at sales or to level up the income from their business. I mean, I can just imagine you have so much experience that there's probably one thing you could say to a business owner that if they went and put it into practice, it would probably increase their revenue by 10% in a year easily that you could maybe think of to share with a, a business owner right now. To question, to question deep to go vertical with your questions, to go subsequent with your questions whenever you're speaking to an individual. Because what that does, what life does not do is give us significance. The truth is, is that we all need to be recognized as a human being. We need to feel relevance in life. We need to feel significance, right? And many of us take it to to certain, you know, to higher degrees, uh, more so than others. But When somebody stops us and they question us about our life, about who we are, the existential, the existential meaning of who we are, this is something very unique because very few people do this. Very few people really want to know you at an existential level, meaning why do you exist? Who is it that exists? What, who are you? What are your motivations? What are your fears? What are your desires? You become, once you become an expert at truly questioning an individual, 
not interrogating, but questioning with in an authentic way with a true desire to get to know that individual, to get to know their motivation, to get to know their fears, to get to know their perspective, how their models of reality. As I'm reading a book right now, Changing Minds, I forget the author's names out of Harvard, but we all have these models of reality that we deal with. And, uh, you know, how is the world modeled for you? Who are you? How do you see the world? And most importantly, how do you see yourself in the world? When somebody comes at you with this line of questioning, you feel that you've been authenticated. You feel that you are relevant. You feel that you're important, at least to this individual. And then you hear it in yourself. You hear yourself expressing your own true realities. And it just gives you a sense of vitality. It gives you a a feeling of purpose and significance, at least in this encounter. Because these types of deep encounters are very rare. So I would tell you, if there's one hack, it is learn to question well, to question vertically, to subsequently follow up one question with the other. I love that, Jim. Okay, so I'm convinced. I, I feel like I need to send my sales training uh, sales team to you to talk to you. And I know people listening to this are going to be like, man, I'd love to, you know, maybe take uh, take some time for German, you know, pay him for, for to have him have a look at their team. What's the best way for people to reach out to you to communicate with you if they want to, you know, get some of that insight? Well, my personal email is probably the best way. And I'm more than happy to have conversation to, uh, to take a look at what it is that an individual has on their plate and what their desires are. So there will be a questioning a sequence of questions that take place. But uh, my email is J-E-M. Those are my initials, James Edwin Miller, J-E-M-S-D is in San Diego, the number one at gmail.com. That's amazing. I love that it's such a, a real email as well. Like you can tell that's your personal email. You know, it's not like Jim Miller coaching at coaching.com or whatever. It's like... So I have several other, you know, I work as a consultant uh, and as an executive. I sit on the executive board of other companies and work as a private consultant. I have other emails, but for purposes of, uh, you know, for your clients, Adam, you know, just hit me up directly on my personal email. You are incredible. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Now, if you're new to the podcast and you want to learn more about how to build a smart business, then the absolute best place to start is with my Smart Blueprint ebook. Over 10,000 people have already gone through the book, and it's one of the most comprehensive resources on strategically building and growing your business that you can find anywhere for free. Just visit the smartblueprint.com forward slash ebook to grab a free copy. And I'll see you on the next episode of Smart Businesses Do This.